This podcast is brought to you by Fear Free, the initiative that takes the pet out of petrified and puts treat into treatment. Learn more at fearfreepets.com. This is the Fear Free Podcast Series. I'm your host, Steve Dale, but I'm never alone. This time around, I'm with Dr. Addie McBain, a veterinarian at VCA Central Kitsap Animal Hospital in Silverdale, Washington, who has a special interest in emergency and critical care. Dr. McBain, here's the question that I get a lot, because I'm out there speaking about Fear Free, and whether they be pet owners, whether they be veterinary technicians and nurses, veterinarians, a common question is, all right, I understand Fear Free is really nice, but what about if there's a trauma, an emergency of some kind, any kind, at the ER? You couldn't possibly do Fear Free under the pressure that you are under as a critical care veterinarian. But I suggest you differ with all those people, Dr. McBain. (laughs) Yes, that's right. We do. But that is an important question because we do have unique challenges as an emergency hospital. We don't have the benefit of seeing patients over and over again and preparing them for the visit. A lot of the time, it's the first time we've we've seen this client and this pet. And yes, they are there because of things that are scary and traumatic and painful. But we at VCA Central Kitsap Animal Hospital, we are a certified fear-free practice, and we have been able to approach some of these challenges and have a lot of success with them. Well, from what I've heard, you're actually a model. You know, so I'm thinking that in the back. Everyone says the back if you're not in veterinary medicine. So you do things that are easy, I would suggest. I'm guessing, I don't know this, but it would be easy to plug in an adaptal diffuser, a feel-away diffuser, the pheromone products. I mean, there are certain things, right, there are certain Mm -hmm. things uh, that you can easily do. Right, yeah. Some things are very easy and simple, and some things take a a couple more steps. But yeah, a lot of things we do are very simple changes that any practice can do. So let's talk about, first off, let's make it simple first, and talk about those simple things that any criticalist or 24-7 emergency facility or private practicing veterinarian who also handles emergencies can do? What are some of those things? Um, So one of the things that we do that may be a little bit different from other emergency clinics is we don't bring every single patient right into the back or the triage area kind of out of the lobby away from the client right when they get there no matter what. And that's something that is normal for a lot of ERs, and I see the utility in that. But at our practice, we only bring patients into the triage area if they have a certain particularly urgent presenting complaint, something like, my dog ate rat poison 10 minutes ago. That's a dog that needs to come into the back. We need to make that dog vomit. But if it's a dog that has a small laceration, you know, we're not going to suture that up right away. That dog can stay with its owner. And the most time that they can stay in kind of a less fearful, less chaotic environment with their owner, the less we're ramping up their fear, anxiety, and stress when they get to the hospital. And something else that I think it's important to point out is that, and people like you who are experts have taught me this, that you come in, and this is true for people too, uh, and I'm going to do my best to describe what I'm talking about, and then you can do a better job, I'm sure. But if, you, if, if I come in uh, to my doctor and say, my arm hurts, but the doctor mm-hmm. makes me wait three hours, 
That can right. happen in human medicine, right? Because I right. think it I broke... can happen in veterinary medicine, too. <laughs> yes, but not as often. And I think right. I broke my arm. I mean, this isn't just... I, oh, I, I've been writing too much, if anyone mm-hmm. still does write, you know? Uh, but Or typing too much might be a better way to say it. Mm-hmm. But this is, right. you know, I've, I'm in a baseball game, and I think I broke my arm. The mm-hmm. pain when I come in, if I, if I were to say, okay, this is level four, if it's left alone over time, it may become level seven. And to mm-hmm. treat that pain quickly is actually the right thing to do. Now, again, I'm describing it in layman's terms. You can do, I am certain, a better job. Well, yeah, and you're uh, making a very important point that, you know, there is this idea where that some people have of, you know, the doctor has to do a full, complete exam. We have to get records about this patient. We have to take all these steps before we treat pain. And that's really not the case. You know, if you have a dog that was just hit by a car and it's very fearful and you're not able to get a real comprehensive exam on that dog, it's okay to give an injection of some pain medication. We know which ones are safe. We know which ones don't interact with other drugs and act really quickly. And the idea that there's a lot of to be gained from poking around on a patient to try to find out where it's painful before you give it pain meds is really, you know, it's not that useful. And one of the reasons for that is because of this idea of referred pain. And when I say referred pain, I mean when a patient is a particularly painful, human patient or an animal patient, they will kind of feel pain in other areas around their body. Um, so, you you know, I've had clients come in for, you know, my dachshund jumped off the couch and now he's really hunched and now he's not wanting to eat and he's acting really painful. And I reached out and touched his ear and he yelped at me. So I think his ear hurts. Well, you know, unless he fell directly onto his ear, I think it's probably his back that hurts. So that's an example of a patient exhibiting referred pain and an example of how, you know, trying to get a physical exam in to localize pain on a patient, meaning trying to hold off giving pain meds for that reason, doesn't have a lot of utility. And when we let patients be painful for this amount of time that it takes to finally get them in and finally get them assessed... You know, they're just ramping up pain and they're just ramping up their FAS or fear, anxiety, and stress. So here you are uh, doing emergency medicine. At what point in time did you think, because as I said at the onset of this, so many people, uh, veterinary professionals and otherwise, say fear-free is wonderful for us or wonderful, I can see it for an animal shelter, certainly Mm -hmm. at home, Pet owners can do certain things, but all, all, but an ER. So when did you think, okay, this can work for me too? Um, so I think just once we started kind of taking each of these problems one by one and coming up with ways to manage them, because, you know, it, like I said, it is an important point because when, we are, when we're doing fear-free practice, there's this you know, this kind of process that we take. When a patient shows fear, anxiety, or stress, you know, and struggles from you, you know, at least two times, that's when you stop and ask yourself, does this procedure need to be done today? And when they're in the ER, the answer is almost always yes. Yes, it does need to be done today. And because the patient is sick and we need to find out what's going on. But, you know, there are ways to do that so that it's not a big restraint rodeo and so that it's not, you know, something that causes post-traumatic stress disorder in the patient, you can take measures to kind of make it easier on them and reduce their fear, anxiety, and stress. And so like a patient who has been vomiting for three days, but is super, super painful, super, super scared, has never seen a vet before, but needs blood work and x-rays, 
that's a patient that I'm just going to sedate for those procedures. We can bring the patient into the back or even in the room with the owner. We can just give a little injection of sedation in the muscle. Most of these drugs are very, very safe. And in most cases, this is a very, very safe thing to do. We tailor our sedation protocols for each patient. But that dog is going to fall asleep in the room with the owner there, and then we're going to bring the dog into the back and get x-rays and blood work done so that we can effectively treat that dog. And then he wakes up, and this hasn't been a huge fearful experience for him. He just kind of wakes up, and he's none the wiser. So that's one way we manage kind of critically sick patients without causing a lot of fear, anxiety, and stress. How important is is it for the owner... When the owner can tolerate it himself or herself, which can be an issue, I know. Mm-hmm, but for yep. the owners who say, I want to be there, how important is it for the owner to, in fact, be there for, well, not surgery, but for a lot of what we're talking about here? So um, there are certain things where, you know, we can't bring all owners into the back, into the treatment area to be present for a lot of procedures for safety reasons and liability reasons and things like that. Um, We also, you know, try not to have owners restrain their fearful pets without other measures being taken for the same reasons. You know, they're not trained in animal restraint, and animals act differently around their owners. You know, this is where we kind of have to be able to differentiate between the pets that are less stressed and less fearful around their owners and the ones that are more fearful around their owners. There are dogs that will guard their owner and be very, very difficult to handle, very fearful in the exam room, and then we bring them into the treatment area, and they do much better. Um, But I do, in patients that are very scared and haven't been to a vet practice before that need to be sedated, I I do try to sedate them with their owner present. That way they go to sleep when their owner is there, and then a lot of the time we'll even allow them to wake up when their owner is there. If the dog is sedated, the owner doesn't really need to be in the back for the whole thing. but to be there while the patient is awake and then when they're waking up can be very, very helpful and can help reduce their stress. I'm curious about something, just your take on this. Uh, mm-hmm. Is it a good, th- and this is somewhat off the topic, but just your personal opinion about this. So a dog is, say, hospitalized for three days. Mm-hmm. Some say it isn't better for the owner to come and visit for an hour or, or two because then the owner has to leave. And that's heartbreaking for the dog. Others say, well, of course, because then the owner can come in, consult a dog, and the dog sees its best friend. It's good for the owner, too. There's no doubt about that. What do you, what's your personal take on it? Better for people to come and visit, or does it actually cause more problems, or does it depend on the pet? Well, I think kind of like the previous situation we were talking about, it really depends on the pet. You know, sometimes, you know, I usually have folks, if they really want to come visit their pet and their pet's going to be in the hospital for a couple of days, we give it a try at least once. And if they come in and they visit with their pet and their dog barks and screams for an hour after they leave, we'll probably ask that they not come back and visit their pet because it causes their pet more stress. But sometimes, you know, we'll have patients that are really stressed in in the hospital despite all of the measures that we take, and then the owner comes in and feeds that pet, and maybe the pet hasn't been eating for three days, and then once the owner comes, they start eating. So it can be very beneficial for some patients, and some patients it just causes them to have more stress. But I think if owners are willing to come in and visit, I give it a try at least once, and if it doesn't work, we say, let's not do it again. All right, so we earlier talked a bit about no-brainer things that can be done, because some 
in an ER, ER veterinarians, technicians, nurses, listen to this because so many are just that their minds are closed. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. I can't do fear free. So I want to talk about at least some. Come on, I mean, who mm-hmm. can't plug in a pheromone? Who can't right. play mellow music in the background, etc.? So what are some of these things that are? And I guess I just mentioned two. I'm guessing. Uh, mm-hmm, but yeah. but what what are some things that can be done that are really anybody can do these things? Yeah, and so if we're talking about, I think we're touching on kind of our patients that are in the hospital that are hospitalized, not our outpatients. Right. You know, the ones right. that are that are going to be there for a couple of days for overnight care. So our clinic is very much like many other small clinics. We're not a big multi-specialty, multi-winged hospital. Our triage area where we do kind of outpatient treatments and minor surgeries and things is the same large room as our ICU. So our ICU patients are there and it can be a little bit loud and it can be a little bit chaotic. But some of the really simple, easy things that we've done is we have a curtain that separates the ICU from the wet tables where we do minor procedures so those patients can't see what's going on in the rest of the hospital. And it does kind of noise dampen. It's one of those heavier curtains. Mm -hmm. And that was very simple to install. Um, when patients are particularly fearful, we kind of we can separate them to another room as long as they're not, you know, being monitored for seizures or something like that. Um, and we can turn the lights off. And there are a couple of different types of music that we play for them. You know, Fear Free does give us access to some some music that's actually been composed for felines and canines. And there's research behind it actually re- reducing stress in these patients. And so that can be actually very helpful. I've seen that do wonders for these guys. And the hormones, you know, yes, we have the diffusers plugged in all over the place. But for cats, in their cages, we just have a little cloth that we hang up kind of to partially separate um, where partially separate the door of the cage so you they can hide behind half of it. And that cloth is actually sprayed with feel away, the feline hormone that kind of reduces stress. And then in dogs, if they're fearful, we put a bandana on them that's been sprayed with Adaptal, which is the canine pheromone. And that can help a lot of patients as well. Um, you know, giving the patients the ability to rest and sleep at certain times of the night is something that we've been implementing as well. And that, you know, being able to sleep and rest and not have to listen to noise and see light 24 hours a day, even though the hospital is running 24 hours a day, can be helpful. Now, if we're getting hammered with cases through 4 a.m., it's not going to be as possible for us to do that. But on quieter nights, we turn the lights off at a certain time and we are very mindful of how loudly we're speaking and we keep the noise to a minimum mm-hmm. and allow the patients to rest and have a little bit of time without the chaos. And we'll even, you know, on patients that are more stable, we'll even withhold our physicals, our TPRs, or our temperature pulse respirations at certain times if the patients are sleeping and then wait until they're awake. My gosh, say that again. I wish they did that in human medicine, right? I mean, really, <laughs> right. I've, I've, yeah. I've been lucky. I've never been hospitalized. But I know people, I mean, believe that, you know, mm-hmm. so really yeah. lucky. But but I know people, of course, who have. And, it's, you know, they tell you, uh, three in the morning, they're in there taking my temperature. And I'm, I have a broken arm. Why were they in there for that, you know? Uh, right. And, and I wish they did that in, on the human side and took so much care about emotional health. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure on the human side they do. So maybe human medicine, we're at the point where human medicine can learn from fear-free. I'm not sure. Now, you're only... Maybe. Pardon me? I said maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So yeah. you're, you're only uh, 
27 years old. So this is going to be a hard question, and don't argue with the host. This is going to be a hard question for you to answer because of that. But, you know, it seems as though everything you just said, you know, it's doable today and and more. Mm -hmm. uh, Easily doable today. I think Fear Free might have come along at the right time in that, pick a point in time, 30 years ago, the pheromone products didn't exist. Some of the pharmaceuticals you mentioned or didn't mention specific names, but some of them didn't exist at that point. We didn't know anything about music and pets. And the list goes on and on and on. But part of it is today we know stuff. Let's take advantage of what we know. Right. Yeah, there is a lot of information and there's more of it all the time about things that work really well for fear, anxiety, and stress. Um, like one of the examples I think of is the way that we use gabapentin for cats now. Gabapentin is a human pain medication that's been around a very long time. And we've been using it in veterinary medicine for a long time, but only in the last kind of few-ish years have we discovered that it's kind of magic for fearful cats for one reason or another. And so I prescribe a ton of gabapentin in my patients, especially fearful cats that are scared at the vet because it's a very safe drug and it's kind of magic for some of these cats. It's not magic for all cats. But um, it's something that we've discovered just works really, really well. I don't think we know exactly why it works, why, you know, what the mechanism is. Mm-hmm. But luckily, it's a very safe drug. Well, and that leads me right into the next question. So sometimes the pets need to come back and see you a week later or two weeks mm-hmm. later, sometimes days later. And they may have had you make it as good as it can be. But still, it's not I mean, they've never met you before if you're an emergency, right? So, I mean, it's not an ideal situation. Now, you can make it so good that I suspect some pets don't mind coming back, but I suspect some pets do, and some pets anyway have previous concerns about veterinarians and about car rides, et cetera, et cetera. So can you help those animals? And is that part of what you do giving, well, you mentioned gabapentin, and you're kind of leading me into it for rechecks and for further visits. Yeah, exactly. And we do a lot of that in our ER. And that's something that helps us. It helps the primary care veterinarian and it helps the patient's outcome because we're all then able to better assess the patient and the patient has a better outcome. And I think as ER doctors, some of us have a little bit of apprehension about prescribing medications for anything other than what the patient came in for, right? Because this is a patient that's been managed by another veterinarian for a very long time. It's this other veterinarian's thing. You know, we don't want to step on anybody's toes. But personally, I've never heard of a primary care veterinarian getting upset about us prescribing medications for pre-vet visits for fear, anxiety, and stress because it helps them. It helps us the drugs that we most commonly use for these situations are very, very safe, very benign, very few contraindications to using these drugs, and they just lead to better patient outcomes. So we're not stepping on toes. We're just making this easier for all of us, especially the pet. Well, it says here, Dr. McBain, right here, it says it, right here, that when not practicing emergency medicine, Dr. McBain can be found hiking, kayaking, walking, running, doing yoga, and traveling. You're busy. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> like it that way. The, the, the veterinarian in the best shape of any veterinarian after doing all that, <laughs> I'll tell you. Uh, listen, I don't know about that. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I learned a lot, and I hope you all did too. If you're already registered for Fear Free, 
Be sure to keep up with all the fear-free happenings. Access the new toolbox items and find out all the additional courses at fearfreepets.com. And of course, if you're not registered, find everything you need to get started at fearfreepets.com. Now, if you're a member interested in pursuing veterinary certification, then get more details on the same site under the Veterinary About section. And if you're a pet owner who just stumbled upon this podcast, welcome and learn more about the resources we have for you at fearfreehappyhomes.com.